0: the complete poems of Emily Dickinson. The same book we've been doing already, the same uh, edition, all of that good stuff. Uh, And we're going to round this out today. We're going to finish it off. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know that I am solo today. Sophie couldn't make it. So I'm here to finish this out uh, solo. So again, listeners chime in. Uh, We love hearing from you. Love hearing from our listeners (coughs) and all that good stuff. But today we're going to finish out the rest of Emily Dickinson's Complete Poems. And as we've already said, as we've done a couple times already, this is... We've broken this up into chunks. So this is the last couple, or the last two... So this is the last 200 pages of Emily Dickinson's Complete Poems. Again, these are all in order for the most part. And we're going to get into some of these. Unfortunately, we don't have Sophie's half for it, but you guys will just have to deal with me. There's that. So we're going to go into this. We're going to get into some of these poems. Hopefully we'll have a little conversation. As always, put your thoughts in the comments. Uh, Send us an email. I'd like to hear from you, all that good stuff. But before we get started, let me do the housekeeping here before I forget. Uh, Reminder to listeners, we're still looking for workshop horror stories. If you or someone you know had a terrible experience in a writing workshop, or any type of art workshop, uh, send that in in excruciating detail to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. For those that don't know, we offer a subscription plan. Uh, Subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash heavyboard, and you'll receive full, uncensored episodes, bonus episodes, extra content, all for subscribers only. Check that out, listeners. If you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we can also, You can also check out our YouTube channels. We have a main channel where we post all free episodes. You can give that a like, a subscribe, a share. That helps us out. We also have a Clips channel where you can do the same thing. You don't have time. You don't want to listen to the full episode. We put Clips out there for free on YouTube, Heavy Board Clips. Uh, that's at HeavyBoard on YouTube and at HeavyBoard Clips. Give those a like, a subscribe, a share that helps us out, helps us grow. It's a free way to support us. And as always, we'll have all the links to everything we cover in the description. I'm going to go through my notes. And I have about, mm, let's say, I got, I got like four pages. Four pages of notes, roughly, on this. And we're going we're gonna to work it out. We're going to get there. Got a fresh coffee, fresh vape. Here we go. One of the things I noticed before I go into the poems here, I have a list of poems, as always, I have the stuff I want to go over, but what I really want to focus on here with this last section of Emily Dickinson is the decline. And I don't mean, listeners don't take this the wrong way, I don't mean decline in terms of her skill, but I think it's obvious as we read these last 200 pages that Dickinson, <clears throat> that she was starting to lose it. Whether that's you know due to illness, whether that's due to her mental health condition, uh, as a lot of listeners know, and we've said on previous episodes, you know she she was kind of a hermit at, at, towards the end of her life. The last 10, 15 years of her life, she really locked herself in her bedroom and didn't come out. And I think the work suffered for it. You start to see things like spiders come up, dusts in corners, you know things that are around her room, and it. I don't mean to say that she's taking it, she's, she's going away from nature and things like that, but she's clearly kind of focusing less on nature. Um, it does, a lot of the poems feel like, oh, it's nature, but it was nature witnessed through, you know, a window that was opened in a bedroom. It was not her earlier stuff where she could go out into fields or at least felt comfortable going out into fields and making... And, you know, making observations in her poetry and things like that. So there is this little bit of decline. So you'll hear me go into this. You'll hear me go into this. And, and I want to be clear here. When, when we say decline, we don't mean bad, right? We don't mean, I don't mean to say that, oh, she sucks. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't read it. No, I mean to say, compared to the other 500 pages of poetry in this collection, this last 200 shows the decline. And you can see this with every writer you can see this with shakespeare right where he just wrote these masterpieces and then just stopped just stopped writing uh there's speculation he was ill um you know people underestimate how much energy goes in to creating something like this you want to write a play you want to write a novel you want to write a collection of poems that's coherent complete like that takes a lot of fucking energy man that takes a lot of time energy uh, it takes a lot of willpower, a lot of discipline to do something like this. These are very difficult creator of endeavors. And anyone who views them lightly is, is not viewing them correctly, at least in, in my eyes. They're not viewing them correctly. But I do want to, and I'll highlight this as we go along. I do want to highlight some of, some of the decline. Some of the decline that she's having, uh, at least obviously present in her work. So we left off at page 500, and we're around 1867, and as I mentioned uh, in previous episodes, listeners, 1867, she's starting to, her production is going down. So that first, hold on, let me find it in the pages, bear with me. 1865 was the last kind of um, packet of poems sewn together that we saw, and that was around... 84 poems composed in the year 1865, and this has way down from her peak in 1862, where you heard Sophie and I go into this. In 1862, she wrote 366 poems. 366 poems. Whew, that's a lot. That is a lot. That is more poems than there are days, right? It's basically a poem a day in 1862. And then she kept it up, 1863, 140, 1864, 172, and then 1865, she had 84 she starts declining there was a peak and then it goes down this is why i brought up the sustainability the energy the thing it takes to write an entire collection it takes a toll it takes a toll and i don't mean it takes a toll in terms of like <clears throat> oh I'm, bur- I'm 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 losing my ability I'm i've lost my gift no i mean it takes a toll in terms of endurance you see this with a lot of writers what happens and they burn out they burn out because one there could be mental health issues there could be other illnesses such as dickinson had here right a lot of authors that get diagnosed with cancer you know t.s elliot when he got diagnosed with emphysema and died of it was not producing the stuff he was producing in his 40s right he was well into his 70s he's you know lung cancer heavy smoker all that kind of shit he just wasn't producing the same stuff you not that he was burning out but you do It's difficult to say that anyone can just do this. It's also difficult to keep it going, if that makes sense. Again, listeners, chime in. So we left off at around 1867, around there. And these are the later years, right? Keep in mind. Uh, And then we quickly move into 1868. Uh, I've noticed, again, throughout this selection of poems, these last 200 pages... There's a lot of unfinished work, especially around 1868 is when we know that a lot of these poems are unfinished. It's written into the book. There's a little note underneath the circa 1868 for a few of these poems. We're going to go into a few of them where it just says in parentheses, you know, quote unquote, unfinished. And those are just the ones that they know were unfinished or at least Higgin or sorry, Johnson, uh, the editor of this book knew they were finished, unfinished. But I got the vibe that a lot of these poems in the last 200 pages here were unfinished they were fragments they were pieces they weren't she either didn't have the energy or you know she was too mentally unstable to go back and rewrite and edit at least like she was in let's say the year 1862 1863 where she it's pretty much her peak she peaked you heard us do this on the podcast we had to cut it down to 100 pages in the 1862 section because there were just it it was too much it was too many bangers there were too many great poems but here's, here's, all right, let's get into some of these poems and we'll, we'll keep talking. Okay. The first one I marked is on page 502, number one uh, number 1,115. Uh, and this one was just the first one to spark me. I didn't have a whole lot of note on it, but then I had to move into the unfinished ones here on the next page. But let's just go over it. Uh, the murmuring of bees has ceased, but murmuring of some, posterior, prophetic, has simultaneous come. <clears throat> The lower meters of the year, when nature's laugh is done, the revelations of the book, whose genesis was June. Appropriate creatures to her change, the typic mother sends, as as accent fades to interval, with separating friends. To what we speculate has been, and thoughts we will not show, more intimate with us become than persons that we know. Damn this one is uh it didn't hit me like this when I marked it you know I was reading through this over the last couple weeks but rereading this as accent fades to interval with separating friends to what we speculate has been and thoughts we will not show more intimate with us become than persons that we know this idea there's a, definitely a death vibe in this, but then there's this idea of loss, separating friends, and, uh... As I already mentioned, I'm doing this solo, and that's just hitting me right now. As accent fades to interval with separating friends till what we speculate has been, right? always will be, and thoughts we will not show more intimate with us become than persons that we know god damn god damn Emily Dickinson was great Uh, I wish I had more comment on that actually I shouldn't uh, talk about it at all right now okay Uh, the next one I wanted to go into page 503 and this is number 1119, 1119. And this is one that was marked as, this is the first one that's marked as unfinished. And there's a few others that are also marked as unfinished. So uh, 1119 on page 503, Paradise is that old mansion many owned before. Occupied by each an instant, then reversed the door. Bliss is, few, bliss is frugal of her leases. Adam taught her thrift. Bankrupt, bankrupt once through his excesses. And then it just ends. There's a little M dash and it ends. And then it's like, oh, it's unfinished. And you can tell it's unfinished. You can tell it's unfinished by the way I read it. You can tell it's unfinished just by reading it on the page here. Looking at how small it is compared to a lot of her other poems, it's You can tell it's unfinished. It doesn't have that completeness that makes the circle. And now that we've hit this, let's get into a couple other unfinished ones. Now, there's another unfinished poem on page 507, number 1131, The Merchant of the Picturesque. And this one's labeled as unfinished and like i said there's 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 ones that are labeled unfinished and then there are ones that just feel unfinished they feel like little fragments for example 1127 on page 506 i'm seeing it right now soft is the massacre of sons by evening savers slain and that's it it's a two lines there's no punctuation it just, you know, it isn't Dickinson, it isn't her peak, it isn't what we've come to know about Dickinson, but I'll get back to this, because 1129 is tell all the truth, but tell it slant, something we went into on our bonus episode, and again, listeners, if you want to hear that, patreon.com slash heavyboard. But you'll hear us go into something like this. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but that's one of her more famous ones, Tell All the Truth But Tell it Slant. And that looks like it was composed in between that little tiny fragment of 1127 and this kind of longer unfinished one, 1131. I'll get to that in a minute. But we have these kind of unfinished poems, and it starts around 1868 that it appears she's not finishing poems anymore. So something's going on, right? Now we can speculate. I've Listeners know. I have feelings when we start speculating about the lives of writers, when we start using biography to explain artistic projects away, to either give them meaning or take meaning from them, or, and a lot of times now, you'll see they'll use biography to discredit um, great works of art because the author uh, isn't a 2023 Democrat or liberal or something like that. Uh, So this is what, and I'm speaking of U.S. politics listeners when I say that, so that's basically what it is. If you saw that thing on Picasso this past week, you'll know what I'm talking about, whereas what matters is not Picasso's art, but what matters is his politics, personality, everything he did, because again, we have no critics. Critics don't have anything to say. So they talk about politics they specifically talk about dnc politics that's what they talk about uh, and that's how they grade art they use this kind of rubric from again one side of the aisle to determine what art is worth remembering what art is worth uh whitewashing in the doll case i got the Christie case ian fleming case right there are these um uh, conscriptions that just these people aren't educated, they don't understand what they're talking about, so they talk about biography. This is a crutch when you talk about biography instead of the work on the page, you're talking about a crutch. So, I don't really want to speculate. That's a long way of saying, you know, I don't really want to speculate about her personal life. One, it's impossible to know. Two, uh, I think it, it's very easy to get bogged down on something like that. It's very easy to say, Oh, well you know emily dickinson is is uh you know she was sick or something and that's why well that could be true but i just it's not doing the work that i think people intend it to do i think it's it's a crutch it's it's going halfway and saying you went all the way saying that you used this one thing to go all the way and they don't usually So I don't want to get into speculation as to why she might, but you can tell she's losing it. You can just read it on the page. That's all the evidence you need. You don't need to go into her illness. You don't need to go into her kind of insanity, her kind of agoraphobic, uh, you know, last 10, 15 years of her life. You just need to read the poems. They're right in front of you, and you can see them start to fall apart. You can see them start to fail. You can see them be unfinished. And this is what we have here on uh, poem 1131 on page 507. So I'll just read this again. It says, Unfinished. The merchant, of the, pitch, uh, the merchant of the picturesque, a counter has and sales, but is within or negative, precisely as the calls. To children he is small in price, and large in courtesy. It suits him better than a check, their artless currency. Of counterfeits he is so shy, do one advance so near, as to behold his ample flight. M dash, and that's it, right? That's it so it's clearly unfinished we just don't have anything else here this only starts in 1868 when she clearly stopped being as productive when she again we can speculate she started to have these kind of mental health issues but we're only speculating about that and we end up with these kind of you can read on the page these unfinished works these clearly kind of fragments bits of poems that haven't come together that she maybe didn't have the energy or time to rework or you know maybe she just lost the passion again after what we know, I've read of Higginson and how he rejected a lot of her work, um, like a moron, he uh, I have no doubt that she lost a little bit of that spark. Uh, it's hard, it's hard to keep that up. as a lot of a lot of aspiring writers know, but yeah, there's another unfinished one on the very next page, five oh eight, poem eleven thirty two, the smoldering embers blush, O hearts within the coal, hast thou survived so many years? the smoldering embers smile soft stirs the news of light the stolid seconds glow one requisite has fire that lasts prometheus never knew and that's it right it ends drops off drops off the face of the earth drops it off and my question about this uh is that it all starts in 1868 and i just what i would normally ask sophie you're my co-host but i'm going to ask the audience here and then try to get my own answer why do we think this is why do we think that towards these last 200 pages, the end of her life, she got worse. And I don't mean, you know, oh, she got bad. It's not worth reading, which a lot of people say. Notice everybody who says you shouldn't read something has not read the book in question. Just want to point that out there, too. So usually when somebody tells you you don't need to read something because, oh, it's terrible, or, oh, because the the author, you know, 150 years ago had bad politics, according to today's standards, right? That DNC rubric of grading art. Um you don't have to listen to them. They they literally, they've never read the book they're talking about. They're just repeating what they heard, whether they heard that on social media, whether they heard it from their hack professors at some point, that, oh, you don't need to read this book because this guy's an asshole, or uh, he was mean to women, he was misogynist, whatever it is. He didn't vote Democrat correctly. Uh, you know, whatever it is. Just, you know, there's things people say. All right, I got to open up a new jewel pod here and I forget what I was saying about that don't listen to anything I say you know who gives a shit let's go back a page to page 506 where we have 1129 tell all the truth but tell it slant uh and this is one of her most famous and you know one of her best one of her best because it gets at something that is true and I know it's a recurring theme on the podcast everyone wants to say oh it's true oh it's honest and my question is always, what does that mean? We need to go a little deeper than just, oh, it's true. Oh, it's representing something true. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's fiction, right? Not necessarily in the case of of poetry here, because you know poetry can be fiction. But in this case, um, you know, it doesn't always have to be. Um, but I do kind of come back to this idea of tell all the truth, but tell it slant, right? And I think, and you can hear this on some of our previous bonus episode listener, where Sophie and I get into it a little bit about what this poem is talking about. Uh, A lot of people claim death because they latch on to her other uh, poems. Because again, there is a lot of speculation. There's a lot of arguments. A lot of bad faith interpretation, I think, and a lot of speculation. You'll even see it when you read the Venler book that we've been using as a companion for this. You know, she goes off into the realm of speculation. She's very honest about it, which most good scholars are honest about stuff like this. but you know, this is what it is. <clears throat> had to uh, had to turn the fan on in here. It's getting a little warm. Okay, so this is one of her most famous ones. We've covered it before, let's cover it again. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth, superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased, with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. And then so we say truth. What does she mean by truth here? What I think she means by truth is literally um, when something... When new information is introduced to somebody, let's say you have a conviction, let's say you think something, and then you're introduced with a truth that proves what you think is wrong. Think of religion, so I guess you could talk about religious context, and in the Vendler book, as we've said all four of these episodes, she goes pretty heavily into the religious readings on a lot of this, and no doubt Dickinson was sticking it to the cloth in that regard as I brought up every single episode so far, but... I think that also can be limiting. I think the idea of putting it in a religious context can limit the meaning of this poem. This poem is broader than just the religious context. This poem is broader than just the truth that all things die. This poem is broader than that. And I'm not saying it's broad in a bad way, right? It's actually brought in a very specific way, right? too bright for our infirm delight right our limited mortal understanding our infirm delight it's too bright for us it's too much overwhelming right blinds us the truth's superb surprise which is often not what you think it is right we do this as human beings we construct these kind of ideas in our head They're like, oh, well, that's why they're doing it. But actually, it's not, right? There might be other reasons. There might be explanations that we just don't know about yet. So it's about overcoming ignorance. This is a great theme in all of, you know, Western philosophy and really all philosophy throughout humanity is we're searching for the truth, right? We're searching for something real. We're searching for someone to help us see the light that's too bright for our little infirm delight or our mortal little pleasures, right? And I don't want to go too far into this, but just keep that in mind. It's a good one to memorize. It's a good one to have in your bank of memorized poems. And it's interesting that this one is dated between all of these unfinished poems as they start to come up in 1868 here. Make of that what you will, listeners. But again, we like to hear from you, so chime in. You think that there's something I'm missing, something that uh, I didn't see. Please, I'd love to hear from you. And again, I want to reemphasize I don't stand by almost anything I say on this. So that's not true. Cause sometimes I do. It depends, right? This is a podcast. This is a medium where I give you my thoughts at any given day. And those thoughts can change. Those thoughts can be reshaped. Those thoughts can, uh, be presented with new information and force me to do something different. Uh, but, that's what this is this is this is a working out of of thinking uh, thinking through this is the rough draft of reading sometimes we're right sometimes we're wrong these are my opinions um opinions change all of that so again you know i'm perfectly willing to hear an argument all right next one that i want to cover page 535 uh number 1213 and this is one where we have two different versions again we have an 1872 version and we have an 1878 version and we've talked about this on the subsequent episodes where there's and we start to get into the kind of not knowing right so we're look at how this is so we start in 1868 30 pages later we're in 1872 1872 1872 1878 these things are interspersed here and it just shows how little she wrote after that big, productive section in 18, uh, that kind of ends in uh, 18, 1865 there. All right. But let's, I'll read both versions of these and I'll, and I'll talk about how, the, how we do this. So, we like March, his shoes are purple, he is new and high. Makes he mud for dog and peddler, makes he forest dry. Knows the adder tongue his coming and presents her spot. Stands the sun so close and mighty that our minds are hot. News is he of all the others, bold it were to die with the bluebirds exercising on his British sky. And that's the version of 1872. Okay, so here's the revised version. We like March, his shoes are purple, he is new and high. Makes he mud for dog and peddler, makes he forest dry. Knows the adder's tongue, he's coming the adder's tongue knows the adder's tongue his coming and begets her spot stands the sun so close and mighty that our minds are hot news is he of all the others bold it were to die with the bluebirds buccaneering on his british sky so those are the two versions version that they estimate to be around 1872 version that the second version the one they estimate to be around 1878 and this isn't me estimating listeners this is fucking harvard scholars okay so you know you want to come after me go let's get a sip of coffee yo if you all doing coffee you don't fuck with the french press you don't know what you're missing i didn't until i started fucking with the french press shout out to the french press anybody wants to sponsor the pod here we go all right, but 1213, page 535, the second version of this. Now, I've mentioned before that some of these improvements in, in her earlier two versions, when we had poems that had two versions like this, a first draft and a second draft that we can look at in this book, in this book. We're not going through the archives, you know, we're not going through the scanned, you know, scraps of paper that are in the Harvard archives and things like that. Uh, but just what's in this book. I'd said in previous episodes that a few of the revisions seem to not improve the first version. Uh, it's not true for this one. In poem twelve, thirteen, page 535, the revision clearly improves it, particularly the choice of the word buccaneering instead of exercising. The bluebird's buccaneering, that uh, not just the alliteration, but I think the way it works with the bluebird's exercising versus with the bluebird's buccaneering. Oh, come on, it's way better with buccaneering. Uh, and then the biggest change that you'll see, listeners that just are listening and don't have the page in front of them, in that first and that second version with the first two lines, they combine the first three lines into two lines. So, we like March, period, his shoes are purple, M-dash. That's the first, um, first version of 1213. The revision in 1878 is, we like March, M-dash, his shoes are purple, period. He is new and high, M-dash. So they changed those first two lines, combine them into one. Now, I think the uh, revision of this one is better, but I do think that combining the We Like March, His Shoes Are Purple, um, is not so much an improvement, but... You know, it's not such a big deal that it ruins the poem or anything like that. There's just clearly everything else she did in this second version makes the poem better. Particularly, she includes the ending M-Dash on His British Sky as opposed to a period after On His British Sky in the 1872 version. So here we have basically putting a draft into her style, and it works for the most part. This improves it. Listeners can let me know what they think, but I think it improves it. And there's going to be more of these. I think there's a couple versions like this. All right. And then on page 536, poem number 1216, uh, this one hit me right away, particularly the fourth line of this first stanza. So here, let me read it to you. A deed knocks first at thought, and then it knocks at will. That is the manufacturing spot, and will at home and well. It then goes out and act, or is entombed so still that only to the ear of God its doom is audible. Yeah, so this idea of forming the thoughts, right? A deed knocks first at thought, and then it knocks at will, right? The thought process and the will to do it. That is the manufacturing spot, i.e., right? Manufacturing the will to do it, and will at home and well. Mm-hmm. So this idea of will going out to lunch, right? It then goes out and act. So will and thought combine into action. or is Or is entombed so still right, or you don't do anything, that only to the ear of God its doom is audible, and I think this just hits so hard, for me at least, I like that fourth line, and will at home and well, I just, it's so musical, it works so well within the poem, and it hits something through so simple, there aren't big words, there aren't complex rhyme and meter, it just fits perfectly and this is just an encapsulation of dickinson this is what it is all right everybody knows it everybody enjoys it and this is where we got into the color episode when we kind of talk about like i think a lot of people would ask what's the point of a lyric poem when i don't understand what's happening in the poem what's the point of it uh i would say the point is your misunderstanding or not not so much your mis. the point is let me think about this I'd say that the point is of lyric poetry, and not just to enjoy it, but there's something articulated in a lyric poem, if it's done well, right, there's a lot of bad lyric poems, that's hard to put your finger on. Not that it's not saying anything, but it's saying something that's hard to put into the concrete. And I think the reason we're drawn to somebody like Dickinson or the reason I'm drawn to somebody like Dickinson is because of this ability to capture something that is hard to articulate. This is the whole point, right? So when people say the point of poetry is to express the unexpressible and I just say, okay, well, you know, what does that mean? Basically, it's a fancy way of saying what I just said. It's saying that this captures something that is that I can't articulate. Right? And they're saying, oh, it's unexpressible. Well, it's not unexpressible. It's just been expressed by Dickinson here. Okay? It was just expressed. It was just here. It's there. It's not unexpressible. It's hard to express. And this is the art of poetry. This is the art of writing. How do you get this feeling across? How do you get this reaction in the reader? So if a lyric poem isn't giving you a concrete example or a concrete story, it's not narrative, or it's not giving you a beginning, middle, and an end, what you have is you have these little bits of it relies on the brain mechanism in terms of triggering a memory thought idea image in the reader so you are anticipating the reader's reaction and the point of a lyric poem is to manipulate the reader's reaction into what you want them to be seeing hearing feeling when they're reading the poem if that makes sense I know I kinda of took a long way winded way to ex- <clears throat> I took kind of a long winded way to explain that, but you know, that's what it is. Little guy I just want to make a note of. Twelve eighteen on page five thirty-seven. Another little guy that can be memorized. Let my first knowing be of thee with morning's warming light, and my first fearing, lest unknowns, engulf thee in the night. Again, just another little one to memorize there. Another little one to memorize, and this is on page five fifty-five, poem number twelve sixty eight. Uh, confirming all who analyze in the opinion fair that eloquence is when the heart has not a voice to spare so this is one where i said okay this is a concise little perfect poem this is a perfect little four lines it captures something and and you ask yourself this listeners what what does it make you think of confirming all all being capitalized who analyze confirming all who analyze in the opinion, fair, that eloquence is when the heart has not a voice to spare. I'd say this is about passion. This is about has not a voice to spare, about giving it your all, right? About obtaining this type, that eloquence is when the heart has not a voice to spare, right? So you don't have time for anything else. You're going for it. Confirming all who analyze, in the opinion, fair. And this idea of kind of a groupthink. Is what i get out of this and you know dickinson is very against this kind of group thing probably because the group think that was common at her in her lifetime was telling her you know she must be married she's an old maid for not getting married and you know she should be a wife and all this kind of stuff and she should go to church and you know she wasn't having that confirming all who analyze in the opinion fair but all who analyze would have had that same opinion that dickinson's fucking up that she's doing something wrong right Uh, not with her poetry, but with her her life and all that. And again, I don't want to get into biography and all that. I always say, you know, context is nice and all, but sometimes you can talk about context until you're blue in the face, and what do we get from it right what does it tell us about the poem sometimes we get kind of overemphasized on context i think we're going through that kind of moment now where you have a professor stand up and give a lecture and all they talk about is the political context around some fucking poem in like the 1920s and it is so boring it is so reductive and it really doesn't tell us much about the work of art in front of us as I say, the great stuff, and Bloom says this too, Vendler says this, all the great scholars say this, um, good work transcends the time frame it was written in. So sure, context is helpful. There's a place for that. I'm not gonna deny that, but there is such a thing as overemphasizing context. There is such a thing as trying to pretend that we can get into the mind space and the head space of, of people from, you know, 1873, where this poem was estimated to be composed. And if we do that, we'll have some greater understanding of this poem that transcends the period that it was written in. And I just think that's hogwash. I think it's unprovable bullshit is what I think that is. So, you know, let the hate mail flow, let the hate mail flow, but it's unprovable bullshit. And I always say, you can talk about context to your blue in the face. What matters is the poem right in front of you. The piece of art right in front of you. That's what matters. It isn't... You can talk about all this other stuff. You can talk about historical context. You can talk about political turmoil. You can talk about the World Wars and all this kind of crap, the Civil War in terms of Dickinson and things. You know, uh, Walt Whitman, etc. And no doubt, like I said, that's important. It has a place. But I just think... It's doing a disservice to this beautiful work of art that transcends the period it came in. I don't know what it was like to live in the 1400s in the Middle East, but I can look at the art and I can tell you whether it's good or not. What it's saying, where it's hitting me in these sweet spots, if it's hitting me nowhere. Maybe I don't feel anything from it. Maybe it's dated, right? Maybe it doesn't transcend the period, but usually the great stuff, the stuff that's been canonized is good it transcends the context whatever the fuck that context may be and i just want everyone to keep that in mind as we move forward here okay a couple other small ones What that right here so page 556 number 1272 and page 557 page number 1274 and these are both 1873 compositions. Notice how quickly we moved from the 1868 into the 1873 now. These last 200 pages, and here we are around 50 pages into that, we already get what is huge leaps in time from her compositions. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us she wasn't writing as much. It tells us she wasn't as productive. It tells us that maybe there was something else going on. Uh, or it tells us, you know, she was bored. I think the boredom factor is something a lot of scholars don't give enough credit to and you see this especially let's talk about picasso let's say picasso where picasso's blue period uh why was he doing that why was he restricting himself to only a few colors you know almost stick figure drawings right and then at the very end of his life he was doing straight up stick figure drawings right some of his famous sketches towards the end of his life he was searching for something he had done all the abstractionist stuff. He had done all the cubism. He had done all these other art forms and he'd done it very successfully. He got rewarded for it. He's famous for it, etc. But even then, after all that, after all the fame, all the success, all the things that everybody, every aspiring artist wants, he was still looking for something. You're looking for the next thing. You're trying to move on. So again, I say that these got worse because maybe her health was bad, but we don't know that. I think she could have gotten bored with her own style. I think that's a very perfectly reasonable explanation as to why this started to be unfinished. She was going through mental illness problems, sure. And you start to read your work. You say, oh, that sucks. You know, you start throwing it out. That's, yeah, very plausible. Everybody does this. Everybody does this. And I think that when we look for these complicated answers in context and trying to be history professors on top of being literature professors, we miss the very simple explanations about human beings and how they do things and why. I think we're, we're, we're going way too far into abstraction. And again, it's usually always around when people do go too far into the abstraction around context, political context and, and things like that it's always about comparing it to now it's always about comparing the author the work what's said the um you know uh well emily dickinson wasn't that good you know blah blah blah. it's just excuses people can make for ignoring the greatness of certain works of art okay so let's talk about these 1272 and 1274 on page 556 and 557 here so i didn't have a lot of notes on these but I did want to just hit them real quick. So here's what we'll hit them. So proud she was to die, it made us all ashamed that what we cherished so unknown to her desire seemed so satisfied to go where none of us should be. Immediately that anguish stooped almost to jealousy. I'll let you take a guess. What do you think, listeners? What do you think of that? So proud she was to die. Oh, martyr, right? It made us all ashamed that what we cherished so unknown To her desire seemed so satisfied to go where none of us should be. Immediately the anguish stooped almost to jealousy. And again, this is a tiny little poem, only a few lines. There's no stanza breaks, anything like that. But it's perfect. It talks about the stoicism at death causing anguish and jealousy. She So proud she was to die. And again, this is kind of the noble, right? The noble... um, the noble fallacy right we believe we are so noble type thing oh you're so noble when you die right as if that matters you're still dead right so and this is what we'd say is an uncharitable interpretation of somebody being stoic about their death be like you know what it happens type thing well most people are like fuck you it happens I'm terrified to die right I wish I could be as stoic about death as you so it immediately that anguish stooped almost to jealousy right you're jealous of it right away again a perfect little truth this is a little bit of humanity this is a little piece just one little tiny kernel of humanity in this tiny little poem from 1873 composed by one of the greatest American masters okay towards the end of her life when she was not being as productive and clearly very frustrated with her own production her own output the stuff she was putting onto the page she didn't quite like it and I think sometimes that can happen, you know, she didn't get very much fame during her lifetime, and she didn't get very much publication during her lifetime, and I think maybe if she had, we might not have had this last 10, 15 years of of her, you know, um, being agoraphobic and going into locking herself in her bedroom, basically, you know, we just wouldn't have that. All right, the other one I want to hit on before we move on, 1274 on the very next page, 557. The bone that has no marrow. What ultimate for that? it is not fit for table, for beggar or for cat; a bone has obligations; a being has the same, a marrowless assembly is culpabler than shame. But how shall finished creatures, a function fresh obtain? O oh, Nicodemus phantom, confronting us again, right? Old Nicodemus phantom, old Nicodemus's phantom confronting us again sorry i missed that uh, uh, apostrophe there a bone has obligations a bean has the same a marrowless assembly is culpabler than shame marrowless assembly right but how shall finished creatures a function fresh obtain A function fresh obtain, I love, right? How shall finished creatures? So finished creatures, I would say, you know, humans, fully formed humans, or you could even say dead creatures, right? No marrow in the bones. You've been dead for a while, right? Uh, A marrowless assembly, lots of death, lots of stuff in a graveyard, all that kind of stuff. And this is where people get caught up in her themes. And I get it. You know, every writer has themes. But we have to be careful as readers and scholars not to assign too much onto those Unless, of course, they need to be, right? This is, all, this is all circumstantial. All right, let's keep moving. On page 560, we have another of these two versions, right? Another two-version poem. And that one is number 1282. Page 560. Uh, and I don't want to go into this as much, but uh, because it isn't changed as much as, as uh, other versions... But these are called, they're not saying unfinished, they're saying there's rough draft one and rough draft two. And these are um, believed to be composed in the same year, 1873. So we didn't have a long gap between poems, which is normal, right? We, we, we can have long gaps between different versions of different poems. As I always say, this is why I say, listeners, be organized, be organized with your drafts, treat them as something sacred, because sometimes the things you're looking for come to you years apart, and it's just easier to deal with that when you get the answer that it just, you know, that electricity runs through your brain and you start to think, oh my God, I just figured it out. I just finally know how to end that poem. Well, are you going to be able to find that poem that you started writing years ago, you know, and put that ending in it? you know, that's the difference between, you know, success and failure, okay, that's the difference between composing masterpieces and not, okay, so yeah, treat it as sacred, uh, you know what, I'm not going to read this, I need to move on, I've already been talking for like, uh, you know, an hour here by myself, another little one to memorize before we move on, page 562, number 1287, in this short life that only lasts an hour, how much, how little is within our power, Again, this idea of life, right? It's so short. We are so powerless over so much, and we pretend we aren't, right? We pretend that we aren't powerless over all this kind of stuff, that we can't control the weather. We can't control all these things in our life, but it only lasts an hour how much how little is within our power again not the most broad not the most expansive poem and there's very little punctuation it seems like maybe a little scrap maybe a little draft but a fun little one to memorize you can bring up at cocktail parties things like that okay here's the one I wanted to talk about page 563 poem number 1290 and I would say this is basically Dickinson at her best let me read it to you the most pathetic thing I do is play I hear from you I make believe until my heart almost believes it too, but when I break it with the news, you knew it was not true. I wish I had not broken it, Goliath. So would you. (sighs) Uh, Dickinson at her best. I think it's perfectly metered, perfectly separated, perfectly rhymed with this stuff, right? Very simple very simple, yet very vulnerable. And this is something I think that isn't talked about enough in Dickinson's work, is that she's able to capture this kind of, those hard to describe feelings of vulnerability that we all feel throughout our life, you know, throughout our Again, throughout our life, because this was written in 1873, this is something all humans fucking experience, okay? It transcends being written in 1873. So could I look up all the political context? Could I look up all the fucking, uh, you know, geography and bullshit? Yeah, I could. What is that going to tell me? Is that going to give me more insight into this universalism that is all over this poem? Is it? You know? I don't think so. I don't think it is the most pathetic thing I do is play I hear from you. And again, how many of you do this? How many people out there listening? I know everybody does it, which is why I'm asking. It's rhetorical, right? I make believe until my heart almost believes it too, right? And I'm guilty of this. And I've been trying to stop doing this where I have this kind of idea in my head and I start extrapolating it. I start creating scenes around it. I start creating motivations for the characters, whether those be fictional, whether those be my friends, whether that be whoever, you know. I start to imagine conversations. I start to imagine what I would say, what I would do, what this imagined person, this character would say back to me. And I'm trying to stop doing that because I've, I've listeners, let me know what you think about this. But I, I started thinking that it's a waste of creative energy. That for me to create fake conversations in my head uh, maybe it serves a purpose. you know, I, I'm not a psychologist. Anybody who knows more than me, please you know correct me if I'm wrong. but I feel like it's a waste of creative energy that I could be putting that energy into something creative into my projects, into my poems, into my stories, into my books, right the things that I've been trying to work on, the things that I've been trying to get published for a few years now. okay And I've just been trying to be like, you know, that's wasteful. Why am I? Why am I putting all this energy into this, into this fake conversation in my head? Dickinson tells us, well, because I'm a human, okay? Because all human beings do this. Everybody does this. And she captured it. And she wasn't the first to capture it, but she captured it in 1873. This is where I say, you know, you want context? Suck my dick, you want context, okay? Here we go. Okay, page 572, number three, poem number 1320. And the reason I marked this one, and at least I just wanted to talk about it, bring it to the attention, bring it to your attention. Uh, this one is left justified. It's one of the only poems of hers that's left justified. And remember, listeners, most of her stuff was handwritten. There wasn't really uh, much more than handwritten at the time. You know, even typewriters and stuff weren't really I don't know this. I'm just speaking out of my ass now, but I don't know when typewriters were invented or when they were common. You know, even for like wealthy people could have typewriters, but I do not know if that was the case here. I don't think so. But, you know, we'll find out. You know, listeners, put that in the comments. Let me know. I don't want to be spreading false shit around, but, you know, not like it matters in today's world. 1320. Uh, Dear March, come in. How glad I am. How glad I am. I hoped for you before. Put down your hat. You must have walked. How out of breath you are. Dear March, how are you and the rest? Did you leave nature well? Oh, March, come right upstairs with me. I have so much to tell. I got your letter and the birds. The maples never knew that you were coming till I called. I declare how red their faces grew. But March, forgive me and all those hills you left for me to hew. There was no purple suitable. You took it all with you who knocks that april lock the door i will not be pursued he stayed away a year to call when i am occupied but trifles look so trivial as soon as you have come that blame is just as dear as praise and praise as mere as blame longer one not the best poem i think it's a little overdone and the lines clearly aren't as tight as her usual stuff particularly particularly in um that looks like third stanza she has a couple really long lines the maples never knew that you were coming till i called was just the longest line in the poem i think that she probably would have edited that out eventually i also think the idea is a little muddled a little muddled where you kind of this march april kind of incoming of spring right and i think this gets back to the religious context of lion versus lamb right the stuff right was what do they say in like a lion out like a lamb type thing yeah i think this has to do with that But now it makes me think maybe she didn't left justify this at all. Maybe it was fucking editors putting their fat greedy hands in her work and she didn't left justify this. But again, I don't know. I don't know and we'll never know again because there's just such poor record keeping, such poor scholarship on so much literature, but here we go. So page 577, poem number 1331. This one I marked because I think it's another good idea. This this captures the kind of sentiment over all else that Dickinson is very good at, that we've come to know for everything she's done. So wonder is not precisely knowing, and not precisely knowing not, a beautiful but bleak condition. He has not lived who has not felt. Suspense is his mature sister, whether adult delight is pain, or of itself a new misgiving. This is the gnat that mangles men. This idea, wonder is not precisely knowing and not precisely knowing not a beautiful but bleak condition he has not lived who has not felt so again this idea of a very simple idea wonder wonder and all right uh and it's how it's kind of this in between thing it's in between it's hard to describe because it's in between really the only thing we can get to describe it is okay you get some type of modern psychology textbook that can boringly describe it to you in the kind of chemical reactions in your fucking head okay we could do that sure we could or or listeners we could do dickinson we could do what dickinson did we could take dickinson's idea of wonder is not precisely knowing and not precisely knowing not right it's an in-between thing it's an intuition. It's a feeling that everybody has. We've been trying for centuries to explain it, to write it down, to capture it. All the great poets have tried. And Dickinson here is succeeding. And she's not necessarily saying what it is, but she's capturing what it is, right? Does that make sense? Tell me if it doesn't make sense, I guess. But she's capturing not what that in-between space is, but showing you what it does, right? So as she moves on in this poem here, a beautiful but bleak condition, right? He has not lived who has not felt. So you haven't lived if you haven't felt this wonder of in between knowing and not knowing, right? Suspense is his mature sister, whether adult delight is pain or of itself a new misgiving. This is the gnat that mangles men. And the idea of comparing it to a gnat, this kind of little pestering thing that flies around, right? Comparing this stuff, uh, misgiving, misgiving, right? mangles and it can eat you up right it can mangles men it mangles men this little tiny thing can mangle people and of course she's using men as the universal here although i think people would kind of be like oh she's she's doing something feminist critiquing men no she's talking about this is where context does matter right she's using the phrases that would have been used then. men stood for universal all people then right and okay sure that's sexism sure it is yes it is but again what are we going to do about it (laughs) what can we do we can't go back and change it all right uh, we just have to understand the context. And this is where context would be useful, is a good example of it. But yeah, okay, let's move on from this. And this is, as I'm moving through here, we're going through 1875, 1874, and where am I headed here? I'm headed for page 586, okay, let's turn there. And this is another one, we have a lot of versions. We have a lot of versions of so 1876, 1877, And this is where I say, okay, sometimes we need to speculate about her because images of rats, images of rats keep coming up. They keep coming up. Where do you see rats, listeners? Just let me, you know, not any specific poem here, but if you read through these last 200 pages, the image of rats seemed to come much more into these poems between like the kind of 1875, 1876 area. Uh, It could be just me. Maybe I'm just noticing something I didn't notice before. But I think that rats did become more prominent as a theme in these works. And why would that be? Well, where do you see rats, right? You usually don't see rats unless you're, you know, you can go out in the field. You'll see a field mouse or something. You really don't see rats unless they're like, you know, they hoard places. They hoard in the pantries. They hoard in garbage bins, dumpsters, right? They they build nests underneath these food sources. in walls, in abandoned chambers. So if she was sitting in her room all day, every day, all night, right? She was in her room, not letting barely letting the servants come in and change her bedpans and things, right? Yes, I think people forget about that too. So she was locked in her room with a bowl filled with her own shit and piss, right? (laughs) With this kind of like these these fucking little porcelain pot that you shit and piss in. And then the servants would usually come if you were rich like Emily Dickinson and change it out, right? So she was sitting in her own fucking shit and piss. That'll attract some rats. Uh, and I think when, she, when you're really isolated like that, you know, you start to befriend people. They talk about this in jail. That's like a common thing in movies and tropes and things. When you're in jail, you start making friends with the rats, right? You start making friends with the spiders. All the little insects that get through the cracks of a building, right? Make their home in it. Uh, we talked about this a little bit with Renfield and the spiders and the insects, right? When he was, he was clearly going crazy and he was meant to show that he was going crazy because he's eating these bugs, but he was becoming friends with these things, right? It's all he had. And there's, (laughs) it's stupid, but I'm thinking of the fucking, that movie Newsies, that Disney movie. Uh, anybody's seen that? It's Young Christian Bale. It's, this is a dumb story, but it was one of my, it's actually one of my favorite, uh, disney musicals that came out during kind of 90s era and i know it was a flop most people don't like it they think it's dumb it's corny but i love it uh it's one of my favorite disney musicals and there's a scene in that where crutchy at the end you know they get vindicated they get the bad guy and crutchy turns to the commissioner and he just says you know the first thing you gotta do in jail make friends with the rats right that was like a little joke that he threw in there, you know? And it stuck with me. And, you know, it's dumb. Although I would encourage everybody to listen to it. It's on Disney+. Plus. Go watch that movie. It's, it's a little longer than a lot of their musicals, but it is. Okay, so the reason that musical is in my life and represents something to me is my grandfather uh, was a newsie uh, in Baltimore City in the 30s during the Great Depression. And when Disney made this movie, about the newsies and and they're doing New York, uh, in the movie. I think it's the, you know, the Brooklyn and stuff. Um, they're talking about the boroughs. Uh, but that was at every major city in the U S at the time. And my grandfather would sell papers. And because of that, when that movie came out, he took us all to see it. And he took us, you know, he bought the tapes and we would watch it with him and things like that. It's one of my most not cherished memories but it's a very poignant memory in my life and learning that my grandfather would tell me stories about basically being a newsie yeah literally eight years old baltimore city 1930s great depression he was standing on the corner holding up papers and shouting you know extra extra or whatever read all about it right the evening edition and stuff And he said there were perks, right? Because he was a newsboy, he'd get thrown ice blocks, they'd throw him chips from the ice, uh, the ice wagons and cars that would go through the city on those hot summer days. Again, you see this in movies and stuff, it was real, it's a real thing that happened. And then he always said his biggest joy of being a newsboy was when he was a little boy, because he was a newsie, they let him get into sports games for free at the old stadiums downtown. And, uh, he tell me that, yeah, he would get in, his favorite part was getting into the Army and Navy, Army-Navy games for free, usually football. He was a football guy. He taught me most of what I know, you know, about football, sports, all that, but I guess that's off topic. But, well, yeah, that's a long way of saying, you know, we make friends, friends in unusual places, right, when you have to, you know, uh, cast away tom hanks right talking to a fucking volleyball why is he talking to a volleyball because we're fucking social man that's why volleyball was his pet his friend the rat is your friend and i don't know i just noticed this in dickinson's work and i know i'm getting way off topic here but you know what do you think let me know what you think in the comments all that kind of stuff uh all right well let's talk about this one then page 586 uh 1357 And then I'll get to 588, 1366, because these are a couple different versions start to take place now in 1876. We're not going to read these, okay, fuck this, fuck this. But again, there's two more versions for 1357 and 1358. There's two versions of these again, and they became more frequent as we went through these last 200 pages. Let me go to 588. Okay. Okay. Uh, One thing I do want to point out before I move to 1366, 1364 on the same page, page 588 in this version. Uh, the first line of poem 1364 is how know it from a summer's day its fervors are as firm and all I got from that was Shakespeare screaming Shakespeare sonnet shall I compare thee to a summer Does it, shall I compare thee to a summer's day thou art far more lovely and more temperate right uh rough winds do shake the darling buds of May blah 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 right okay keep going right I'm just down this memory I don't have the whole thing memorized but you should memorize a couple Shakespeare sonnets okay uh, but yeah, I just wanted to point that out. How know it from a summer's day, right? How do you know it from a summer's day? Yeah, okay. But also on page five eighty eight, poem number thirteen sixty six, they have it separated into these two, these three groups: A, B, and C. So we have thirteen sixty six A, thirteen sixty six B, thirteen sixty six C. And they're very small. They're very, very, very small. And they're kind of all estimated between the years eighteen seventy six and eighteen eighty. They're not very good poems. They're very little uh the dates seem to be all over the place which leads me to believe that she was trying to work through this for a couple of years and maybe it couldn't get anywhere but you know and this is where i started to notice that yes the poems do seem to be shorter more unfinished uh not worked out to the way that they should be or the way that we're used to with a lot of dickens and stuff and what can we do about that a lot of people do this towards the end of their life. You know, when somebody dies, a writer dies, we find their works. We find the stuff they didn't publish. And we're like, oh my God. You know, I saw this too with Hemingway, right? And it was a couple, it might have been a year or two ago where I saw this. It might have been the Harper's or somebody published. You know a previously unpublished Hemingway story and they said oh you know exclusive this is a short story from Hemingway that was never published I saw a lot of people a lot of prominent literary people shitting all over it saying I could write better than that Hemingway wasn't that good I'm really good writer (laughs) I'm definitely not just snarking online yeah okay and they were shitting on it and I just thought to myself oh wow you mean one of Hemingway's lesser stories A story that he thought wasn't good enough to publish isn't as good as his masterpieces? Oh, who would have thought? And of course, these people are convinced that they're geniuses because they noticed that this story isn't as good as his masterpieces that were published during his lifetime. Yeah, he didn't think so either. That's why it wasn't fucking published before, okay? It's literally there for fans. It's there for connoisseurs, collectors, people to appreciate. That's all it's there for. And all this kind of critique, all this, oh, his style is dated because 100 years later we don't write like that. Yeah, okay dude like these people that's what i mean be very careful who you're listening to for your literary opinions one because most people don't actually read the books they're talking about they're repeating what they heard from either a teacher uh, a harper's article or somebody they follow on social media okay that's really it and i just yeah i just you know i don't want to rant on this i don't want to rant on this so i'll just stop but you know all right i'm gonna pee i'll be right back guys yeah, but you know, that's how I that's how I feel about that. All right, we're about halfway. Okay, we talked about those three-section poems and blah blah blah. Uh, next page, 596. About halfway here, 596. And the reason, you know, I'm covering more in these first 100 pages because You'll see if you read this, listeners, the last, you know, 100 pages or so, it really falls apart, and and it really starts to be, not sad, but it is a little bit like, ooh, she's losing it, right? Um, you see this, you know, we see this all the time, we see this with our favorite, you know, artists, direct, it, it's hard to maintain, even if you're at the peak, you can peak, and, and you can... One of the things I try to do, and I'm interested in listeners' ideas on this too. So you know, let let us know. Send us send it a comment. Send it an email. What you do to make yourself keep yourself from getting burned out? Do you do breaks? Do you do, do you do breaks? Do you do things like uh, 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 timed writing sessions? You know, you don't want to get so worked up over something that you lose sight of something else, right? But uh, yeah, let me know. And I'm gonna try and get you know some more writers on the podcast we'll we'll start talking to them about things like this too listeners but yeah all that good stuff there will be changes coming and not just me being solo but yeah we're gonna we're gonna mess around and experiment with this thing too so and this listeners we want to know what you want what do you what do you like what would you like to see me read what would you like to see me go over give my takes on uh but yeah okay Page 596, poem number 1389. <laughs> My notes for this one are to say perfect. God, what a master, right? Okay, so here we go. Touch lightly nature's sweet guitar, unless lest thou knowest the tune, or every bird will point at thee, because a bard too soon. Mm. Now this one's definitely about writing, right? I think everybody knows it's definitely about writing and it's can touch lightly nature's sweet guitar unless thou knowest the tune or every bird will point at thee because a bard too soon. And it's kind of, I think a lot of writers, a lot of artists fear this. We fear blossoming too soon. And I know a lot of people say, Oh, you haven't been born as a writer yet. And it's sometimes that's partly true, right? It takes a lot of work. To do something like this it takes a lot of work to write something to completion we've talked about this on previous episodes i'll continue to talk about it because it's important and it's something i think not enough writers talk about not because they're embarrassed but because it's kind of like the ugly work at the factory right we don't want to see uh you know the sweatshop with the slaves in it uh making our iphone we want to see the iphone on a pretty little box on the shelf okay right we don't want to talk about the factory sweatshop and i get i get why writers don't want to talk about that but uh you know it's just part of it. Let's be honest, it's just part of it. All right, let's do uh, let's go to page 597 here for poem number 1392, and this is a very famous one. Hope is a strange invention is the first line you might know it by that one. Very, very famous. I was gonna let Sophie take this one, but of course, I'm running solo, so I uh don't have a whole lot of notes on this one, but I'll do what I can, I'll read it at the very least. Hope is a strange invention. A patent of the heart, in unremitting action, yet never wearing out. Of this electric adjunct, not anything is known, but its unique momentum, embellish all we own. And what is it saying, right? It's obviously, well, hope, right? Oh, it's talking about hope. Yes, of course. Hope is a strange invention, though. A patent of the heart. In unremitting action, yet never wearing out. So, this unremitting action, never wearing out. We were just talking about burning out, right? But hope, this kind of endless flame, this kind of endless call to action, this kind of endless thing. And it's perpetuated inside the heart or inside the human body, right? It's perpetuated in here uh, of this electric adjunct. Not anything is known, but it's unique momentum, embellish all we own, right? This idea. We don't know much about it. we know it embellishes almost everything it covers it it slathers everything we do we're like hope hope it's fucking slogans it's 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 political slogans it's 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 marketing campaign slogans it's hope yeah sorry i wish i had more to say on this one but it's been talked about written about to death you guys can look it up Alright, i'm turning to page 615 Home number 1449. And we're in 1878 with this one now. We've moved through. We're getting into the final, you know, 100 pages here. The last 100 pages of Dickinson's work, which is, you know, I don't want to sound grandiose or I don't want to sound like I'm overemphasizing something, but... Reading complete works, especially of, of canonized artists, and I'm not talking about just some fucking random person, or, you know, if you like that person, you like that artist, you know, read their complete works, consume their complete works, watch all their movies, read all their books, uh, save PDFs of all their fucking masterpiece painting, you know, whatever it is, okay, do that. But there is, it lets you see, it lets you see beginning, middle, and end. You can see beginning, the good, the good, the bad and the ugly not everything is a masterpiece not everything comes out the way you want it not everything can be worked into success or a complete structurally sound work of art okay not everything can be some ideas get left on the table some ideas get left behind it's just the way it is okay but this one on page 615 poem number 1449 it struck me i, I, I struggle to articulate why let's see if i can do it here but this one struck me as a love poem it struck me as a love poem in a couple different ways now, here let me read it to you and then we'll, we'll discuss here uh, i thought the train would never come how slow the whistle sang i don't believe a peevish bird so whimpered for the spring i taught my heart a hundred times precisely what to say provoking lover when you came it's treesty flew away to hide my strategy too late Too wiser be too soon for miseries so halcyon the happiness atones i thought the train would never come simple enough right simple enough the image of waiting for a train so she means that literally right but then of course it's poetry so we can't just rely on the literal she means more than that she means the metaphor of waiting for a train right how slow the whistle sang I don't believe a peevish bird so whimpered for the spring. I taught my heart a hundred times precisely what to say. Who hasn't done that, right? Who hasn't gone over and over and over again in their head what they'd say to a lover? Provoking lover when you came, its treesty flew away. So this idea of love as a bird, love singing for the spring, all this kind of, or the birds singing for the spring, same as humans singing for love, all this good stuff. And I just, it struck me struck me as this is about love this is a love poem this is about the gradual coming to love coming to understand what it is this human emotion this human experience and i think people don't understand what it isn't too right there's this we romanticize love we romanticize relationships not just in this culture but every culture we romanticize it and i get it because it feels very good inside we get those human emotions where we kind of go yeah, you know, that feels really good. We romanticize love and we, we kind of think that it's supposed to play out like a fucking movie. Like it's like it's supposed to play out in some predetermined, imagined way. And it just, it doesn't, right? It never does. And this, you know, it's Treesty Flew Away, right? Provoking lover when you came, right? Even no matter how hard you try, you want it to go one way. You have this set sets of expectations and then those expect expectations not being met because they're they're not realistic they're fantasies in someone's head right and i think we talked about this a little bit on the uh, olina uh, oliana davis episode uh number 32 i believe episode number 32 listeners go back and listen to that where she she mentions this she talks about this and then she was talking about it in the context of a marriage ending i think that's clear from the poetry and of course if you want to go biography with that you can look at her divorce and things i don't like to go too hard in the biography although of course you can get a little gleam a little things from it i'm not going to deny you can gleam a little bit of information from it hold on we got a dog chorus here and moving on with this theme of hope this idea of, of things in our head Page 616, poem 1451. Whoever disenchants a single human soul by failure of irreverence is guilty of the whole. As guileless as a bird, as graphic as a star, till the suggestion sinister, things are not what they are. And again, this little great poem about truth, and not just truth, but the negative or ugly aspect of truth. Right? Whoever disenchants a single human soul by failure of irreverence is guilty of the whole. So, this is kind of right, kind of the tell the truth but tell it slant. Same theme, same theme, right? When you disenchant somebody, in this case, a human soul in the poem, but we can broaden that out. Right? We can mean humans, we can mean humanity, we can mean an individual human soul is guilty of the whole right so so if you disenchant somebody's belief if you tell them the truth and don't tell it slant you're guilty you're guilty of something they're going to accuse you of something you will be it's the crucible you it's a witch trial right Right. things are not what they are and this is you know you hear that saying people the cliche ignorance is bliss you know why that cliche sticks around it's because it's true It's because ignorance is bliss when you don't know something you can't be upset by it you can't be disenchanted you can't be um you know too bright for an infirm delight you can't be shocked into knowing something new or have your worldview crumble it it just it won't happen and we're happy we're usually human beings we're happy with that the less you know right um the burden of truth maybe is is what I'm getting at. This idea that to be a truth teller or a truth quote unquote knower, right, is a burden. It's a burden particularly when when the truth disenchants a widely held belief. For example, you know, the earth is flat or something. Uh, What happened to the people that suggested the earth wasn't flat? well they were put in jail they were hung they were burned at the stake because they disenchanted a single human soul so they were guilty of the whole and we're moving through to 1879 but on page 623 poem number 1472 it's a very it's a little fragment again i think this is an unfinished little fragment that's my that's my you know guessing at what it is how it feels to me when i read it on the page it doesn't feel complete and I'm going to try and explain that to you. I'm going to try and explain why it doesn't feel complete to me. Maybe I'll, I'll fail at it, but here we go. Uh, to see the summer sky is poetry, though never in a book it lie. True poems flee. True poems flee. And this little fragment, I think, captures a lot about writing in terms of this kind of beauty, verse, truth, etc. This kind of... Call back to Keats, obviously, in some way. If we're talking beauty and truth, right? Calling back to the Keats. But, to see the summer sky is poetry, though never in a book it lie. True poems flee. And lie is spelled L-I-E here, as in to lie, tell a lie, right? True poems flee. True poems flee. They leave they're not remembered uh tell the truth but tell it tell it slant and i think this is something people get confused to see the summer sky is poetry though never in a book it lie true poems flee so to say that poetry is trying to capture the summer sky or just the picture of the summer sky or seeing the summer sky is poetry though it can't be captured it can't be in a book if it is in a book it's a lie right true poems flee poems that can't be pinned down truth beauty these things that are so hard to capture so hard to explain in a work of art so hard to put on the page that's what she's talking about and i don't want to talk about oh well you know anything can be a poem that's not true that's not true at all you know that if you're a listener to this podcast but i think it is there but you can let me know what you think about that okay on page 626 poem number 1483 I marked this one because it's a little different and i think it, it it strikes a level of maturity that breaks through in these later poems so a lot of these later poems are incomplete they're fragments at least they feel that way when i'm reading through them they feel like practice poems fragments things she didn't finish because of whatever reason but this one's finished this one strikes me as a very mature uh rendition of of um of Dickinson's style. And this was composed circa 1880, we're estimating. So it would make sense that it's much more mature. So we are if her peak year was 1862, 1880, okay, so what are we, right? We're 18 years, almost 20 years between her peak 1862 compositions and this? Let me read it to you. So the Robin is a Gabriel, in humble circumstances. His dress denotes him socially, of transport's working classes. He has the punctuality of the New England farmer, the same oblique integrity, a vista vastly warmer, a small but sturdy residence, a self denying household, the guests of pers, the guests of persipacity The guests of persipacity are all that cross his threshold. As covert as a fugitive, cajoling consternation by ditties to the enemy and sylvan punctuation i just thought of how mature this poem was how you can see in her style everything that we've been talking about over these last what is it 10 hours of talking about dickinson's complete works it it all coming to fruition here later in her life 1880 and she's able to give us something a little different but not really so different that it doesn't fit or anything like that, but it's very mature, more mature than other ones. The Robin is a Gabriel. Of course, she means Gabriel, the, the angel from uh, the Bible, right? <laughs> In humble circumstances, his dress denotes him socially of transports working classes. So here we are. Let's move on. So on page 638, poem 1525, we have another asterisk here, and it's calling us to poem sixteen sixteen. It's on page six sixty six. So let me mark that and turn to it real quick, and I'll read you both of these. And this is the same thing like the balls upon the f- about uh, balls upon the floor type uh, poem that we read earlier, where we have the kind of a revision or another verse or re- rewriting of the final verse here. So let me read this to you. So the 1525, and this is circa 1881 version. He lived the life of ambush and went the way of dusk. And now against his subtle name, there stands an asterisk, As confident of him as we, impregnable we are, the whole of immortality entrenched within a star. And then the 1616 version. Who abdicated ambush and went the way of dusk and now against his subtle name there stands an asterisk. As confident of him as we, impregnable we are, the whole of immortality secreted in a star. And that was composed around 1884, circa 1884. So we have about three years separation between these two revisions, or what they're calling related revisions in this version. What I'm thinking of this is, why did Dickinson do this? Why okay so easy answer is well she was writing right so sometimes you do a revision years later and it works out and i would say maybe the first version is better Uh, it's hard to say i haven't looked at it enough but you know it's there and this is 1881 versus 1884 too so three years separated and she's going back to rewrite this poem i guess she just wasn't happy with it or again we can this is only speculate we can only speculate because we don't know But, and then the the kind of easy explanation, she was just revising. She was writing a different version. And these are both included because when you're reading a complete works, you need to know both. Now, here's another one I wanted to point out, and this is more of criticism. So on page 642, poem number 1539, and this was composed circa 1882 from what we know, or at least Johnson's guessing here. Now I lay thee down to sleep, I pray the Lord thy dust to keep. And if thou live before thou wake, I pray the Lord thy soul to take that i pray i pray the lord thy soul to make sorry she was doing a variation of the prayer right i pray the lord my soul to take um and she was purposely subverting that now the reason i mark this for criticism this seems like i'm gonna say this but don't take this the wrong way this seems like the laziest of her prayer type poems where she's subverting the prayer or the expected use of the phrasing in a po in a prayer that's been handed down by the by christian faith right and it's strange in this way that it's kind of it's barely clever it's, it's not as clever as her stuff that's usually doing this it's shorter so it really doesn't uh expand on the idea at all but it just struck me as strange it struck me as something's going on where where the poems are getting shorter they're getting less clever they're getting less biting maybe is a good descriptor they're less biting they're more i don't know how, how would you describe this uh, and now i lay thee down to sleep i pray the lord thy dust to keep and if thou live before thou wake i pray the lord thy soul to make um it's honestly more positive than some of her other stuff uh and it's about you know the actual prayer is kind of dark you know you pray it traditionally people would pray this type of thing before bed right and they would I pray the lord my soul to take if i if i die before i wake right and she does the, the if thou live before thou wake i pray the lord thy soul to make instead of the, to take and i don't know it just struck me as terribly unclever lazy um and it, you know nothing against it this is one poem you know in thousand the poem that you know is over 1700 poems here and this is one that i just think is not quite working clearly an exercise clearly something she didn't write another draft of so she didn't think that was worth it but you know there it is you can let me know if you think it's lazy or you think it's incredibly clever i don't it'd be hard-pressed to convince me but okay uh and then on page 647 poem 1554 And I marked this because, as I was reading through the last, you know, 100 pages of this collection, a lot of it was disappointing. A lot of it was Dickinson... I keep saying losing it, or I keep saying... but, But, you know, I don't mean, like, losing her ability or anything like that. I mean losing the spark or the drive that made her so productive in those previous years and you know 1862 being the peak but here's another one that just struck me as more than the other so i marked this one because it was just better than some of what um i was reading in this in this last bit here so 1554 go tell it what a message to whom is specified not murmur not endearment but simply we obeyed obeyed allure a longing oh nature none of this to law said sweet thermopi. I give my dying kiss and this one is marked very uh, almost overdone with the M dashes but it's so much so much M dash that actually works I think to pace it out so again it was just better than the other ones she was experimenting still it looks like even when she was not being as productive and it's normal right I'm experimenting all the time I'm experimenting on books I have a book of poems that I'm working on right now that's kind of an experiment in terms of the craft what it can do um but as usual, I don't, I just don't, uh, I don't talk about books that aren't out yet, you know, don't, because uh, the, cause the book could never come out, it could never come out, it could it could be a complete fucking failure, uh, so there's that possibility, but around this time, around the 1884, 1885 parts of the book, as you move through here, it seems very strange, it seems like she almost can't get anything out that she actually wants to get out. It seems like she's really struggling to get these poems out of uh, out of herself, right? And I was, again, this is where I got into biography, which I don't like overemphasizing, but like I've said, listen, it has its place. We just have to be careful not to overemphasize it. And I think I'm trying to be, but it did make me wonder you know was was this when she was locking herself up in her room because if you're locking yourself in your room and you're isolating yourself from the rest of the world there is no way you can possibly uh interact with the world to compose poems and things so her poems don't hit as hard they're not as memorable they're not about these kind of universal truths as much anymore they're more narrow they're more lost they're So I kept seeing, like, I said strained. They seem strained. It seems like she's straining herself to reach. And, you know, we all age. We all get older. This is very close to her death here, 1886-ish, right? Very, very close. So. And I just want to make the point that it's clear, you know, her art seems to be suffering because she had a mental illness that prevented her from seeing, you know, the forest from the trees clearly, and she couldn't trim stuff down. And also an interesting thing to note here around page 674, 675, we start to lose the date estimation. And we talked about this on previous episodes. Some estimated dates were, you know, had questions mar- question marks next to them. We didn't know if... They were composed at that time, we're just estimating, we're guesstimating, we're using other things to help us determine when these might have been composed. But around the last 40, 50 pages here, there are no dates. It's all question marks where the dates were leading up to this. So we don't know when exactly these were composed, although some have dates here and there. They're all circa estimates, but right after 1880, we just don't know. We don't know. I, You know, it hurts our scholarship. It hurts our scholarship if we don't know, we can't determine what is what's causing it to be this way, or why, why, I don't know, I mean, you can see this, you can just feel it, I don't know how else to describe it right now, except you can feel it, you can feel that these poems feel out of place, they feel unfinished, they feel like scraps, they feel like, you know, exercises that she was doing daily, as all writers should, you should be doing daily exercises and things like that, but it just, it doesn't quite work, and you can see her kind of lose the magic, I don't know. Listeners can think what they want. They can disagree with me on that, but I think it's there. And all these undated ones, I have to say, I don't know if it was just because I was, you know, reading the last 200 pages of this, and this has been something I've been reading for a long time, that I was getting, you know, burnt out or done with it, but I think based on my readings for the other sections that it's around this page 675 that it just starts to be very lackluster it just starts to reach that point where you know she was basically just a sick older woman at that time but that being said there was one poem that I marked at the end really I think there were two yeah two And these are the two that i thought were really good in the later bunch here where we don't have dates we can't really determine when they were written but they're put in here on page 698 poem 1718. this is the one i marked where i just thought this was the best in the later bunch of poems that i was reading through so drowning is not so pitiful as the attempt to rise three times to said a sinking man comes up to face the skies and then declines forever to what abhorred abode, where hope and he part company, for he is grasped of God. The Maker's cordial visage, however good to see, is shunned, we must admit it, like an adversity. I fucked up the reading of that last one there, you heard it, but still, this one I thought was really good. Drowning is not so pitiful as the attempt to rise, right? Where hope and he part company, so death, right? The hope of living is what she equates to death in this poem, particularly, but she does this in a lot of poems, you know for he's grasped of god the maker's cordial visage however good to see is shunned we must admit it like an adversity there it is there it is and this one was published 1896 so this is one of the first collections here that it came out so everybody recognized how good this was all the other poems around it weren't released until 1945 when harvard released their whole her whole collections the books like this but 1896 so everybody saw how good this poem was Everybody saw, these editors, these people, people that knew, they understood, just like I do here. This poem is better than the rest of this bunch. All right, <clears throat> and this is the final poem. This is the final poem here Listeners, we made it the whole time. Final poem I marked was on page 702. Uh, number 1732. And I marked. It. I don't know why I think this is so famous. I think this is famous, but don't quote me on that. I'm not a big Dickinson expert, but I do like it. So my life closed twice before its close. It yet remains to see. If immortality unveil a third event to me, so huge, so hopeless to conceive, as these that twice befell, parting is all we know of heaven and all we need of hell. Yeah, that just seems very like I've heard it before I, it has to be a famous poem my life closed twice before it's closed it yet remains to see if immortality unveil a third event to me right so those two closes and then it closed so huge so hopeless to conceive as these that twice befell parting is all we know of heaven and all we need of hell again no date on this one we don't know when it was written but again nice little poem famous one And she's talking about the events right going to death life all the big themes that she hits at if immortality unveil a third event to me right so if you don't die my life closed twice before it's closed so i died twice before i died it yet remains to see right we can think of it that way at least if immortality unveil a third event to me so another time of dying or something else so huge so hopeless to conceive as these that twice befell parting is all we know of heaven and all we need of hell partying and again it's kind of a jab at the church right Parting is all we know of heaven so all we know of heaven is that we go there when we die in terms of that and all we need of hell right and that's it that is it we've hit it we've hit the complete poems of emily dickinson the whole fucking book listeners the whole fucking book And that's it. All right. Uh, Reminder to listeners, we're still looking for workshop horror stories. If you or someone you know had a terrible experience in a writing workshop, send that in to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to start a segment on that. Uh, Those that don't know, we do have a subscription plan. Subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash heavyboard, and you will receive full, uncensored episodes, bonuses, all that good stuff for subscribers only. Uh, If you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You could also check out our YouTube channels. We are at Heavyboard on YouTube and at Heavyboard Clips. Both those channels, we offer free videos, uh, free versions of our podcast on those channels. And the Clips channel obviously just has clips, but they're free. Uh, Please like, subscribe, share those with your friends and family. Those help us out, helps us grow. It's a free way to support us. And as always, uh, the links to all the books and shit we covered are in the description. And next week we are doing... Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five and that's one I'm looking forward to listeners it's one of my favorite books Vonnegut's one of my favorite writers we're gonna hit that bad boy hard alright this has been Heavy Board. see ya Heavy Board. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. Sweats, pal? Pal, I do.